think a lot of people get into snakes and breeding reptiles now and they don't know a thing about natural history. They've never seen a snake in the wild. They've never read a book on a snake, on a snake's anatomy. You speak to people breeding ball pythons now and they're like, I'm waiting on my first clutch. How many days to my first clutch? What's a cloaca? Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to From the Ground Up podcast. So, PortCityPythons.com. We have a couple animals available as well as we posted them up on Fauna Classifieds and all that good stuff. Other than that, there's also t-shirts available. And I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for all your support for allowing us to do the podcast, host the podcast, that kind of stuff. So thank you guys so much for that. Otherwise, we had some breeding activity today. We started pairing probably about a week ago or so, or maybe almost two weeks ago. But Colubrids typically after that first shed, you start pairing them up, but often it will be a week or two, even three before you start seeing a lot of good action. So we just had our Brooks King Snakes log up. So I believe we may have a, at least that's our first uh, resemblance of breeding behavior. So, so it's exciting. And also we've never bred Brooks King Snakes before. So I guess keep an eye out on that. And um, he tried to eat her first. And I had to, <laughs> like, I didn't know that if if Brooks king snakes, like, or king snakes in general, uh, we've had, now we've had two of them try to eat each other. And this is our first year doing uh, doing king snakes. I didn't know, like, he he bit her head and started constricting. And then I took him off. And then I was like, let me just see, because usually he, was giving her like decent breeding behavior. He wasn't trying to eat her the last couple times we paired him. And then, so I took him off and put him back in and then he changed his mind and he went for it. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I can, uh, I guess you can't let that freak you out and take him out and, uh, <laughs> and split him up after that. But learning as far as that goes, which is fun, scary and all that good stuff. But I'm pumped for that. Other than that, we have here, we have Graham Battison. He is a curator of Hot Springs Rep- National Park Reptile Garden. And Graham also works with blood pythons. And yep. he lives over there in the UK. So Graham, could you give us a little overview of, I guess we'll talk private sector first. I mean, what do you got going on blood python-wise? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm, to be honest, I'm winding down my blood python collection at the moment, but I still have individuals from all species i've got the the brongas my the brightenstein eye and the curtis the borneos and the, the sumatrans too um i've actually got a female which is about to lay eggs probably tonight she's um she's looking all twisted up you know she's looking uncomfortable so usually with bull pythons you've got about 24 hours you know from when they're starting to flip over and lie inverted and stuff before they actually push the eggs out it's not like berms or something where you You've got two weeks of that sort of behavior before they lay eggs. And she's on probably day 33 now after a uh, post-ovulation shed. So we're in the right ballpark for that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I've had two clutches so far this season. 
this will be my third clutch of the Broncos. My hopefully the Breitenstein either Borneos will go. Uh, the Curtis have got it too small at the moment. They're uh, like yearlings. So, what attracted yeah. you to uh, like the short tail complex and blood pythons? I think um, what it was, it must have been fifteen years ago now. I did a trade. I, I, I had a friend who imported ball python morphs from from the states from a guy over there, and um, I imported one of the first yellow belly ball pythons in, <sighs> that came into the UK. You know, yellow bellies are everywhere now, but I think I paid about six hundred pounds for this yellow belly. And we got it in, and he, he got a number of them in and sort of sold them around the UK. But I got this female in, and I raised it up and stuff. And I thought, you know, I want to diversify a little bit. So I traded this this yellow belly ball python out, and I got an adult pair of uh, python Breitenstein eye, the Borneo short tails, in the lead. Also got £400 cash to, you know, to add to it. So... I uh, struck gold with that one, really, and um, I got this pair of Borneos in, and he just sort of had that reputation that gave Bloods and Short Tails a really bad rap for so many years. You could tell the owner hadn't worked with them. They were really flighty. They were big adult-sized ones, so as soon as I took them out of the snake bag when they arrived, they were thrashing around and failing and spraying liquid pee in your face and firing your eight balls, like, you know, like, hailstones at you and it was um and it was really something to behold but i I thought you know these animals they if they're looked after right and they're worked with they're not really going to stay like this and after you know so many months of working with them just gentle interaction stuff like that and they really settled down and they grew on me so um I sort of uh, I got I got the bug there, and then I um, I sold sold off a lot of my collection because I was going through uni and stuff like that at the time. Do you know studying zoology? So I just didn't really have the time for a large collection of animals. I still kept some ball bitens, but um, I moved the Borneos on. But they they definitely held me interest. So um, after a couple of years, after finishing uni and whatnot, I. I uh, I acquired a few more and just slowly built the collection from there. I thought, I thought you know, they're a more personable animal than a ball python is. They definitely sort of um, give you a sense that they know what's going on. They'll watch you working in the snake room. You can see that eye sort of ticking back and forth. And, and also, you know, you've got to work for the reflection as well a little bit. So I just thought, you know, a new challenge. Ball pythons have really sort of... I was able to breed and reproduce and stuff like anyone nowadays, you know, really easily. But remember when I did get into ball pythons a long time ago, not really many people were breeding them. You know, a lot of it was still wild caught import stuff as well. But then the morph game came into things and and really um, boosted the popularity of them. I was wondering, like, if, I mean, maybe your opinion as far as the ball pythons go, obviously we're so many generations into captive breeding. I mean, do you yeah. see, cause I mean, obviously the blood pythons, uh, wild caught blood pythons that you were probably working with back in the day or other folks were working with were crazy. I mean, yeah. do you think that, you know, bloods and short tails could get to that? I think we're working towards it now. I mean, you know, 
we're probably looking at, you know, four or five generations of captive breeding, especially with lions in the UK, maybe more in the States. You know, people have been working with Bloods and Short Tails for 30 plus years now. The Barkers, you know, Keith McPeak was working with that stuff when I was a, a, a kid. Um, and I think we're working towards, all right, people argue whether or not you can domesticate, you know, a species of snake. But look at corn snakes and look at ball pythons and, you know, all the other colubrids and stuff that have been bred. So many generations captive bred now. It's as close to being domesticated as you're going to get. You know, um, I think definitely we're, we're, with with selective breeding and captive breeding and stuff like that, you can breed for regression as well. Coronaris talks about it a lot, you know, picking certain less aggressive animals and working with them, and they seem to produce more placid offspring. Certain, um, if you get a new bloodline in, you'll see it in, 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 a multitude of species now you'll get a brand new bloodline or a new morphin and the first generation the f1s the, the snappy because whether it's whether it's something to do with you know sort of a quick process of evolution or whatever that you're selecting for in captivity i don't think things really work that fast but if you're breeding two placid animals together then something something genetically is going to pass on with that you know so I think a lot of it's selective as well. Yeah, I think it's it's weird because obviously we're so we're so new to this whole captive breeding game. I mean, in relative yeah. relative to uh, say what evolution would serve as far as thousands of years, you know, <laughs> things things take thousands of years to change. So it's hard to say that something's going to happen within a few generations in captivity, Definitely. but but. It seems like, you know, via anecdotal information that, you know, keepers and breeders have noticed, especially like even retics, like when they were yeah. first imported and then they're so placid now. I mean, I, you can't really ignore it. There's got to be no. something to it. Yeah, there's definitely some sort of selective, you know, there's, there's an inheritance side to, to behavior and temperaments, I think. I mean... The, the, the wild courts that you get in that are completely wild and completely nuts usually don't breed for you, too. So they just don't settle to that captive life. So they're sort of selecting themselves out of becoming that F1 tame captive generation anyway, you know what I mean? So, But I think the more plastic ones, the ones that adjust to life in captivity from a fresh wild course and the ones that actually do breed, definitely passed that on a little bit yeah now how many as far as numbers wise uh was like the peak of your collection and production as far as bloods and short tails go uh numbers wise i mean i was doing bloods and short tails as well as ball pythons at the same time so i probably had maybe 80 adult animals and that was a lot of ball pythons as well but pythons you know they take up more room you know, you can't keep as many of them. Um, I've, I've sold a few adults on lately because I'm just trying to wind things down. So it's not a total headache, you know, when I, when we do our visa things and, and, and look at actually moving out, out to the States. So I've, I've, I'm trying to make life easier for myself, especially with these three clutches of eggs now. I've got another clutch of eggs due to hatch in about probably 18 days now. And then... Um, I've got 
this clutch of eggs, which is due to drop. And I think, cross cross my fingers, that the Borneos are going to go as well. So, so it could be a bumper year for production, you know. So I don't really want to make life hard for myself having to shift a load of adults all at once, you know. So a few a few people, a few select people have, have received some adults from me. Yeah, I was kind of wondering that. And I want to talk about the transition, obviously, when you move over here. But first, I kind of want to hear about the, I believe it's the black eye, the stuff that you've been posting up oh, that yeah. you've hatched out. Yeah, I mean, I got, um, it was an unusual hatchling that I got from a friend of mine in Denmark called Jesper Lund. And he hatched out this matrix. Um, it was an ivory female and he bred a golden eye female, uh, male to it. So he got some 007s and stuff, and he got um he got some matrix, and this one matrix had jet black eyes. Eye colours are funny thing because it seems does seem to be inheritable in a lot of um, especially snake morphs, you know, a lot of ball python morphs have got a certain eye colour to them, green eyes or you know, darker eyes or um blue-eyed leucistics and things like that. Um but Jesper was selling up his blood python collection, so I got this this mail from him, and it, he, he gave it to me really cheap. But I knew there was something to it. The ground color of the whole animal itself was off. Um, you know, Matrix usually have quite a high orange. This is like sort of subdued and sort of more chocolates and grays and stuff in there. And I thought there's got to be something inherit inheritable to this trait, you know. So I bred it to um, a Hetsy Poz female. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have some more matrix black eyes? But, you know, it could just be attached to the matrix gene. It could just be a new line of matrix or whatever. But then I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have some that aren't matrix, but we've got black eyes so we can sort of separate that gene. And uh, I had three outs with that, that aren't matrix, but they've all got solid GF black eyes. So that was really cool. It's obviously a new dominance, at least, in inheritance. There's um, two of them are quite clean, the babies. They've got some genetic striping, which has been passed on from the female. In bloods and short tails, that genetic striping is pretty much, it can be polygenic, but it's more, it leans towards a more dominant thing. Any two striped animals you breed together, you know, you're going to get really more, more pronounced stripes. It just, it seems that every striped animal wants to make a better striped animal. But, um, there's one that's not striped and it's just crazy looking. It's 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 got all these melty patterns and stuff all over it. The front end of the snake from the head and the shoulders is like black and the tail end is black. It's got a black tongue and it's got black eyes. It's just That's cool. I can't wait for them to have a fair shed so I can get them. I can't stop taking photos of them now. <laughs> but when but when they have the fair sheds, you know, they're gonna be something else, I think. And now really cool. For for those people who aren't well versed in them like me, oh, what's yeah. the what's the typical eye color? The typical eye color on a blood is like sort of like a they have a an orange top. They have a, a, a sort of stripe going through the uh, through the eye on the scalation anyway, but it sort of goes through the eye the eyeball itself, and it makes like an orange stripe through the eye. So the eye's quite light with like an orange to reddish stripe going through it. But with these, it's just it's just solid black. Yeah, so that's, that's a lot different than uh, than orange. Yeah. 
Uh, the, the hope is that it's going to be some sort of incomplete dominant. You know, we're going to breed two black eyes back together and see, just throw it up in the air and see what comes out, you know. <laughs> and something you, compl- could be something or nothing, you know. But you were talking about like how the patterns are different, are typically clutches, are typically clutches kind of all over the place as far as look and pattern go. They can be, they can be, as I say. I mean, if you get anything striped, you're going to find some of the babies have got stripes anyway. Um, if you breed two stripes together, you're going to end up with like tri-stripe or super-striped animals or ones with a big, thick, fat, wide stripe down the back. But, but these are definitely different, you know. Even, even with the striped ones, the shoulder area of the animal is like, it's almost as though the gene is doing something to sort of whack out the stripe and zigzag it from side to side. So it could it could combo well with things. You know, obviously we've got a I've got a matrix one, so let's see what it, you know makes with a the batik, you know, with all that freckle pattern, or what it, what it makes with a golden eye, or you know, even hopefully if we get a super, what the super black eye is going to look like. I think it's such really lucky on blood pythons. You know, this last year I made the you know the super stripe batiks, which sort of you know made everyone's eyes pop out the heads a little bit. Doing you know. A lot of people thought you weren't going to change that fatigue pattern because it's so sort of strong, the gene and the freckling on the animals really strong. But mixing it with the super stripe, you sort of ended up putting the, that pattern into rows and putting big stripes mm-hmm. into the animal. And it just came out really, really cool. I, I think that's interesting because like a lot of time when we're when we're breeding animals, especially if there's some type of inheritable mutation that we know kind of how it works, we tend not to breed pattern with pattern. Yeah. Like we usually yeah. do color and put it in that pattern and just add different colors to it. But yeah, it's interesting to see the interaction between two mutations that are whacking out the pattern in different ways. Definitely, definitely. I mean... There's, there's a lot of things you could do with uh, with that super stripe fatigue. I mean, you could do, you could breathe a, uh, a, you know, a stripe matrix to it and go for super stripe matrixes. I know um, there's a guy, Jason Chapman, over there in the States who's got a stripe, uh, a single gene stripe matrix. And that's like a really, really freckled snake, but it's got a solid stripe down the middle. And it's really cool, but I don't know how that look in Super Stripe, but it'd be worth you know checking out and seeing because you've got sort of two looks on one animal. Yeah, that's awesome. And as far as the like UK market, UK breeders like that, I mean, what is it like for Blood and Shortail? Are there a lot of breeders out there? It's growing. Let's just let's just say that. And I, I think with the um, with the Golden Eye and stuff, there's a lot of interest now in Bloods. Whereas, you know, a lot of guys have saturated the market ball python-wise. You know, and I've recently I've had a couple of big ball python breeders trying to get in touch with me, asking me for baby bloods. So you know that when the money guys with ball pythons are sort of leaning towards bloods, you know that they've got things planned. And there's a couple of other good breeders in the UK. There's some really good breeders in Europe especially. And we can, we can at the moment... Well, why we haven't gone through Brexit anyway? We can move stuff to Europe and move and get stuff from Europe fairly readily. After Brexit, we don't know how that's going to change, but I can't see it being too much of an issue. We just, you know, it might be more of a red tape 
with regards to paperwork and stuff like that. But the, the blood market in the UK is definitely growing. Definitely. I mean, I, I advertised a baby the other day and it sold like three minutes later. Wow. You know, it's, it's it, it, you know, even with ball pythons now, you're competing with about 300 different people just to move a baby or a lot of people don't even want to give you money anymore. They want to trade you something or, you know, and it just seems to be become one of these reptilian swap shops now where it's, you know, no one actually wants to, any cash to change hands. The bloods are selling okay. You know, I'm going to keep back the ones that I like and probably send them over to the States and, we'll, and raise them up over there, especially the black eye stuff. You know. Did it, is a lot of that founding stock, is it originally from the Barkers, originally from U.S. breeders? I think the stuff in Europe isn't. I think some of the morphs that we've got in over in Europe have come from the Barkers. You know, obviously the Golden Eye started with the Barkers. But since the Barkers got the Golden Eye, there's been some wild core Golden Eyes brought in. You know, a few people have got them now. I know they found the T-positive Albino started with the Barkers. But since they found the one, I think they found there's probably 20-plus T-pos Albinos in the wild now. Wow. So, you know, not all morphs, you know, when people say this wouldn't exist in the wild, but 20, up, 20 plus of them have, and they've done well and survived to adulthood. <laughs> to the be adults, honest, those aren't, those aren't oddly, I mean, those aren't totally not, out of place. No, but the ivory, the, the white snake, the ivory, that was a wild caught adult. So, wow. So, so now that someone was traipsing through the jungle one day and found this big wild white blood python that had survived to adulthood the chances of finding something like that in the wild are obviously minuscule but there's um it's been two pied bloods found now and i know one of them's over there in the states wow you can imagine the combos you know the pied blood's gonna make like a big dreamsicle albino pied but you know but with the size of a blood python and stuff it's really impressive and it does look like the the pied ball python the pattern and sort of color on it is more or less the same. So when you combo that with other things, that's going to blow people's minds. That's oh, that's man. it, man. <laughs> that, 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 that pie blood's the game changer, I think. But the Barkers have got some really, really cool stuff that they're only just letting trickle out now. There's a wrought iron gene. They've got um, a black smoke, which is like a melanistic type. They've got the zigzag gene. They've got all kinds. There's a lot hiding in that. Uh, building full of snakes that they they've got. <laughs> well, I think I think they're they're good at recognizing the fact that you know what made the ball python special is the fact that there were so many. You know, it was predisposed to have mutations in a sense. As far as there's a lot of there's a lot of genes out there. There's a lot of things to work with, and I think yeah. they see the potential of that in bloods and the fact that you can have all those genes. You know, in a different species like blood pythons. I mean. They all that has equal potential as far as that the Definitely. possibilities. There's um Rob Stone, the guy who uh, helps Eric with NPR sometimes. I mean, he, he said there's probably more wild morphs of blood pythons than there are of ball pythons, and I I can't argue with that because every time you look at these Indonesian pages, there's something new and something weird that's been wild caught and popping up. And, and people are breeding them, and, and the babies are looking similar. I think most most of the, the morphs coming out as well seems to be incomplete dominant ones as well, which is 
even throws more into the mix, you know, more potential of what you could do if you if you're into the morphs. But it's not just the morphs with bloods, the, the reds, you know. The, the natural the coloration, you're already starting yeah. better off than most morphs yeah, can get absolutely. to. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and they fetch higher prices. Karen Harris has selected breeding reds, and she has been for the best part of 10 to 12 years now. And some of the things she's hatching out, and she holds back entire clutches as well, just because she's like mine. <laughs> but um, but the, the you know some of those reds are better than, better looking than any morph that you'll find any morph. But there's also there's blood pythons occur in Malaysia and Sumatra, but they occur in in like four different wild color variations. So maybe you could compare it to you know corn snakes. You know, you've got the uh, the ochre teas or you've got different Florida color color sort of variations with bloods. You've got like a brown sort of natural wild occurring type. You've got the red ones. You've got the yellow ones. And, it, it, you know, you can work on mixing the morphs into just them wild color types as well. So yeah, I think that's... That's something underrated that we're working with now in corn snakes is taking the localities and breeding their coloration into mutations and enhancing Absolutely. mutations through localities. Absolutely. I mean, it's just, you, you can never get bored. You know what I mean? This thing can go on forever. <laughs> you know? Now, I mean, translating as far as, or transitioning all of your collection I mean, are you trying to, how many animals are you trying to import and what are kind of, how can you do that? I mean, I'm sure it's hard. Well, not a lot of people export from the UK to the States. So when you're looking for advice, you haven't really got anyone to turn to. I think the the, the path that I'm going to follow is maybe to get in touch with DEFRA in the UK and just see how I go about it. You know, I know I'll have to do export permits and things like that, and that might take some time. I'll probably send them to Randall, and he can, you know, do the import permit side of things over there for me, and we'll fly him into Little Rock Airport or whatever. But I'm looking at maybe 20 animals, maybe, you know, maybe 10. Um, the black eye could have sighed another clutch. This one, that's due to be laid. So, you know, anything black eye is coming with me. The super stripes that I've got as well. I mean, you don't see those brown and black ones with the yellow stripe in the U in the US. I know Tracy's got them, but she hasn't let any go. Tracy's a master at holding onto things and just slowly letting them trickle out into the market. But she she calls it a yellow stripe, and it's it looks the same as the one the line that I've got. But um, people over there seem to be really eager. Dan Magano wants wants some of that stuff off me. So I might take some over for myself and I might take some over just to trade out and, you know, get some of the good stuff you guys have got over there. Yeah, I was about to say, like, does it, it's a mixture between like, it's obviously going to be a different market, but are you excited about the opportunity of, I mean, <laughs> a lot of the, the legendary people are, are over, you have your Keith McPeaks, you have your, yeah. your Barkers over here. I yeah. mean, are you excited of it to be to have the opportunity to work with different animals? And then are you kind of a little bit nervous because the market's bigger, but also there's like big established people in it as well? No, I think the good thing about the blood market is, and especially the blood community is we're all friends. 
you know what I mean? You, even you across the pond. Even across the pond, I speak to those guys regularly, and it's it's just it it's just a different community to the ball python one. I mean, everyone just has each other's back. We're all supportive. We'll all help each other out, and we'll all complement each other on each other's animals and things like that. Anyway, you've got you've got great guys over there. You got Matt. You got Minnesota. You had him on the show. You got Rumbly. He's got some nice stuff. You've got Mark Kirkpatrick. You've got Matt Turner. You've got Nick Bettini. And they're all great people. To just, you know, so I'd like to buy from everyone. But I'm Is sure that... some, some will be more eager to sell stuff to me than others, you know. <laughs> Is that something that um, the, the, the blood community, I mean, do you guys... Do they get together or anything here in the U.S.? Uh, I think I think at the shows, some of those guys hook up, you know, especially at um, the October Tinley. I think, you know, Frank Goody and Keith and a few other guys, Minnesota and stuff, they, they meet up at October Tinley and have some beers and stuff like that. I guess that's so, a whole different animal, the October. Like, you can go to Tinley as well. Yeah, well, I'm hoping to get out there this year. I'm actually hoping to get back out in September. I'm looking at going to Arlington show with Dennis McGee and uh, Randall Berry. But uh, I've been speaking to Tracy Barker quite a bit online, and you know she wants to meet me at the show and do some talking and stuff. So it'd be good to uh, to finally meet Tracy in person after you know probably 25 years of sending her emails since I was a little kid. <laughs> You're gonna love like the the Arlington show is great, but what's better is like all the the breeders down there and the people down there are great as far as the the community goes definitely definitely i'm real excited to get out there plus while while we're out there you know we can do some herping in, in texas as well oh man that's like just the amount of animals that are in that region especially compared to to some place like the uk oh it just it will blow your mind man <laughs> You could look for a snake here for about three weeks and not see anything. But, you know, when I flew out to Arkansas, I think I slept the first night I got to Randall's house. And um, the next day, Randall took me to one of his spots. It's like some disused railroad tracks. And 15 minutes later, Randall nearly stepped on a cotton mouth. You know, it's, you know, he spotted it. But it was um, just, you know, to, to be somewhere where you can just, it's like picking fruit off the tree. And, we and went, it's uh, probably a lot easier if you're with Randall. He knows yeah, what he's oh, yeah. doing. He knows all the good spots anyway, definitely. <laughs> he's got and some I guess secret places. Let's let's talk a little bit about why you're coming over here. So people are like, why are you talking about this? So <clears throat> obviously we mentioned Hot Springs National Park Reptile Garden. So yeah. that is in Arkansas. Yeah. And you have taken a position there, right? Yeah, I've uh, taken the position of curator. I'm going to be working under Randall. Randall's going to be general curator. And uh, we're reporting to Dennis McGee, who's um, the director of Hot Springs National Park Reptile Garden. Uh, Dennis is a lifelong herper. You know, Dennis worked for Carl Carlfeld back in the day. He worked at Staten Island Zoo. He worked at Cincinnati Zoo. He was partners with Ross Allen, another legendary herper. Uh, he was... Um, partners with Ross Allen when they built uh, Gator Town in Florida. Um, again, a huge attraction. You know, Ross Allen, unfortunately, didn't live to see see it open. He passed away, but Dennis did. 
And um, it's just the, the history, the history Dennis has got and the history Randall's got. I mean, you know, who, who better to be working alongside than those two guys? You know, two brilliant fellas, absolute gentlemen, really sort of took me under the wing. And, and they've seen something in me as well, you know. And I think professional herpetology in the UK is really difficult to get a foot in the door. I've tried twice to, to, uh, to apply for a job at the School of Tropical Medicine. The first time I applied, I got down to like the final two out of 300 applicants. And the second time, I wasn't even given an interview. So it was like, where the hell am I going to go here? Menial work's not for me. You know, these run-of-the-mill jobs have always been bored. My attention span is just that short. And I think every day in work in a monotonous job, you're just thinking about thinking about getting home to the snakes and doing that. So this 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 job opportunity is going to be perfect for me. I can't wait to get out there and get started. But it's not just to get out there and start work. It's it, the, the place where it is as well. You know, you're right in the national park. There's lakes, there's boating lakes, there's national forests there, you know, there's bear country. It's, you know, it's just a beautiful, beautiful city, Hot Springs, and there's a lot of history and stuff there as well. You know, there's beautiful old buildings, there's a real community spirit. You know, every week there seems to be something on, you know, free activity, and there's hiking trails and cycle trails and things like that, and it just looks like a really great place to raise, raise our son. You know, we've got a two-year-old boy. And I think the thought of staying in the UK at the moment, especially with the political climate and, you know, austerity and things like that that are happening in the UK, just I can't see raising him here much longer. You know, I want him to have that fresh air lifestyle, that wholesome lifestyle, and just to be around great people as well. And Hot Springs is definitely full of, full of great people. So obviously you started out, I mean, you're, when you first went to university, you were doing zoology. So, I mean, are you excited just to, you're around people who have like dedicated their lives to reptiles? Like, are you ready to like, now you get the opportunity to basically dedicate your life to what you love? I think, I think it's going to be a case of going back to school again as well, especially when you're working alongside people like Dennis and Randall. Randall, is one of the most experienced venomous guys in the States, in the world. You know, you name it, he's kept it and he's, he's kept it and bred it. You know, he knows what he's doing. He's a kit. Some, some venomous guys are there just for them. You know, the machismo of look at me, I'm working with venomous. Randall is one of the most responsible venomous people I've ever seen. You know, if it's not safe, he won't do it. He's really careful. And it's just the knowledge base he's got from years and years of working with, you know, you know, New World and Old World landsets, you know, Trimerosaurus and Tropodolamus, pit vipers, rattlesnakes, cotton mouths, all the, you know, the native US stuff, cantils. You know, he's kept it all. Plus, he doesn't forget anything. He's got them. He's got a great. He's like an elephant. You know. He's kept something 30 years ago. He's going to remember exactly what its specific requirements were and, and how he figured it out, you know what I mean? It, it, he's got that encyclopedia sort of brain, the photographic memory for these things. 
and uh, Dennis as well. You know, Dennis has worked with Venomous. Dennis has done a lot of work with crocodilians, a lot of work propagating alligators, you know, learning how to farm alligators back in the day when that was, you know, that sort of became a marketable thing. And, you know, there was sort of, um, you know, farming alligators became, you know, very profitable, but also helped repopulate alligators in the States as well. So it was, you know, a win-win conservation-wise. Dennis has done all of that. And, you know, when Dennis took me hairpin in, in um, Wichita uh, Mountains, just being alongside him with, the, you know, two guys with a snake hook and you're looking for timber rattlers, and just the stories he was telling me, if you just like, you just want to hear those stories forever for the rest of your life, you know. <laughs> you know, it's not often you find someone with that like-mindedness in the UK. And I'll bore my friends to death all the time talking about snakes when we go out for beers or whatever. Because there's just not that many of you. I mean, it's growing. But when you've got, a, a, I think, a, a passion for natural history as well and snakes, and breeding reptiles and, and all of it. I think a lot of people get into snakes and breeding reptiles now and they don't know a thing about natural history. They've never seen a snake in the wild. They've never read a book on a snake, on a snake's anatomy. I've, you speak to people breeding ball pythons now and they're like, I'm waiting on my first clutch. How many days to my first clutch? What's a cloaca? <laughs> and you're like... The cloaca is where the eggs are going to come out of, you know. <laughs> do some reading, do some research. <laughs> you know, I think the best, the best herpers and the best, the best reptile keepers. I've always had a passion, not just for snakes, but for natural history and wildlife. You know, anyway. So there's just something to prior generations that have such a different perspective because there was no money in it. There was, yeah. and the interest typically came from herping itself, from finding them outside and just Absolutely. trying to keep them and observing them. And it wasn't exactly trying to breed them in three years so that you could sell your offspring or yeah. stuff like that. And it's like meeting people who are well-rounded like that is like, yeah, it opens your mind up to be like, oh, damn, I've just been keeping snakes at in tubs and they're coming from deli cups yeah and like this is not really for me it's much more rewarding i feel to be engaged with with people who are well-rounded like that yeah definitely i mean back in the day as you say people were just sort of meeting up for the weekend going camping and collecting stuff and, and uh, trading you know whatever they found yeah, there was no money and- involved mailing sort of tips and tricks to each other across across several states or whatever just just to sort of pass on information and information was shared quite freely back then i think nowadays not enough of it's shared or i don't think we've moved on to the level where we should be at especially now i think you know the source of um, a one-size-fits-all sort of attitude towards a lot of species now especially working with pythons I think everyone just sort of, sort of has the, the ball python mentality and everything's going to work that way. And I think there's a lot more to these animals than that, you know. Well, people even do that with all the colubrid species. I mean, you're seeing them just keep them in the same size tub as you would a ball python, same setup yeah. as a ball python. Well, the natural behavior of that animal is like 
a 360 degree turn from anything that a ball python does. And that yeah, probably that's... goes the same for bloods, goes the same for a lot of these animals as far as it isn't. Yeah, it isn't that one size fits all. And I think we can we can do better. And to be honest, looking at if you look at like the keeper and the kept, it, yeah. it his enclosures are now far superior to the ones that we've, we've gone backwards in a sense. And yeah. for a lot of these species for ball pythons, it works amazing. Right. But, yeah. but I don't know if it, if it works for everyone or every species rather. There's um there's an interesting fact about that Carl Fell book, the keeper in the cap. It was Dennis who gave Carl the, the title, the idea for that. No way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You really need to get Dennis on here because He's going to be a great guest. I know we, I know we'll happily do it. You know what I mean. You know he's a bit of a technophobe, but we'll get him on, and and you're going to love talking to him about Carfeld. You know, he gave me the snakes and snake hunting book, and um, I, I I think I've read it. You know, cover to cover twice now, and it just it takes you somewhere, doesn't it? You know, it, I'd love to recreate that book now and go around all of those locations. And just to see if the habitat's still there and to see what the snakes look like that Carl's describing in that book, you know, I could I could take Dennis and do it. I think he'd be really pleased to do that. He grew up reading that book, you know. What a thing for him to be able to go and do and just step by step follow everywhere where Carl Fell went in that book. You know, but a lot of people aren't getting out turping anymore. You know, a lot of people, like you say, are just keeping these things in captivity and they think that's it. You know, you need to look at a snake's environment and I think the things it has to endure and go through in the wild before you really understand how the animal works. You know, we're feeding these things on a weekly basis. They're getting everything, you know, on a silver platter and the wild just doesn't work like that. I think they're a lot tougher than what, what we allow them to be. Yeah, I mean, they're not exactly on newspaper uh, nope. with a water bowl in the wild? No, definitely not. Definitely not. They're crawling through thorn bushes. They're getting pecked up by vultures. And, you know, a wild snake never looks as good as a captive snake does. You know, they go through the wars out there. So, but they still manage to eke out a lifestyle and all these different habitats. And that's what makes snakes so interesting, isn't it? Just how they've evolved to just sort of dominate every single corner of the globe apart from you know the, the places where it's really too cold for them just a marvel of marvel of evolution absolutely and it makes it all that more fun because they're so secretive and difficult to yeah. find and there's so yeah. much so much variation whether it's species or even with localities of different snakes especially you know you go down in west texas and you could be on you know, at one mile marker, and then go a couple miles down the road, and snakes look completely different. And yeah, yeah, that's sort of uh, the alterna craze with all the different phases of uh, the gray bands. People are like it was like the gold rush out there, you know, just to find these certain little locales, and everyone's got like their own private markers where to find them and what certain ones look like. It's it's, it's incredible, and you look at things like the rock rattlesnakes, New Mexico, and places like that just two miles like you say two miles down the road you know they're completely different it's it's amazing and there's still new new species being discovered you have marco shay on and he was talking about the new python 
that he didn't want to show me photos of when I asked him, but <laughs> they, they found something that that that's a Python, you know, and I think it was an East Timor. So I know I know um I know Lesser Sunder or Timor pythons don't actually occur on Timor. But what's the snake that he's talking about? I think and I know a couple of years he was talking about a new sort of um, Antaresia species. And I, but I think he's he's marked that now. That was in New Guinea, and I think it was just a maculosa, a spotted python, but obviously a New Guinea version of it. But I don't know what this thing on his team or is. I'm waiting to see photos of it. <laughs> yeah, it's like we are uh, we're all still discovering things, and that doesn't just include. I mean, it doesn't. You don't have to just think of everything from captivity. I mean, you don't. No. No. You don't have to see everything through that view, but I mean, are you, are you excited? What kind of, are you interested in any uh, native U S animals? As I far love as finding? the native stuff. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's so many things, so many things. There's an art that I'm really into, you know, the mountain Kings, all the tricolor stuff just really does it for me. But I, I like black rat snakes. I like speckled King snakes and we've got those in Arkansas. So, I like rattlesnakes. I like the black tails, you know, the adamantius. It's one of the most impressive looking snakes with that sort of banded sort of face when they're sitting up with that buzz tail going. There isn't a snake in the world that I find uninteresting, you know. And you see a lot of you also hear a lot of people these days saying, Well, that's just a, a boring snake. That you know, they're a they're a boring snake. Ball pythons are a boring snake. Ball pythons aren't a boring snake. They might not do much in captivity, but there's nothing about nothing boring about the process that's made that animal a ball python. You know, it's a ball python because evolution has made it a ball python, and there's nothing dull or uninteresting about that. You know? I think the only thing that gets boring about them is that you're beat over the head with them at every reptile show yeah. over and yeah. over again. Yeah, I mean. The, there definitely needs to be more diversity. And we've only got one show here in the UK. It's uh, the IHS Doncaster show. And again, you know, you're looking 70% ball pythons. And it's just, you're just walking from table to table. Occasionally, you'll, you, you know, you'll see something cool. Someone might have, you know, a nice colubrid you don't often see, Russian rat snakes or rhino rat snakes or something. But the, those people are few and far between. Everyone's sort of gone down this you know, Pokemon Python sort of attitude where you've got to collect every morph. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. You know, I think ball pythons bring young people to the hobby. They're really easy to look after and take care of. We brought a lot of women to the hobby, you know, who want to, um, you know, sort of breed them for all these cool colors and things like that. So that's another a, a good thing. I, I try not to look at the negative side of it, but the negative side is definitely the monoculture that's sort of happened with it. But, you know, what you've got to do is open people's eyes with other things like bugs or colubrids and all the cool clones, things like that. You know, you've got to diversify and then show people how cool these other things are. And a lot of ball python keepers now seem to be diversifying the collections. You know, they're moving out to other different different species and different types of cajun and things like that. And I think that's a good thing, you know. I really want to start a venomous collection. But, oh. you know, 
all the all the um all the arboreal vipers have really do it for me and they have done since I was a kid. You know, Waggler's vipers, you know, the uh subannulatus, Butriacus, the eyelash vipers. I like I like the business as well. I like the rhino vipers. Dennis McGee's got one of the best looking rhino vipers I've ever seen. And you'd have to see this thing in person, but it's just blue and it's huge. And it's it it's just one of the most amazing snakes that you'll ever see. And I'm gonna convince Dennis to give me that snake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there's a better looking snake as far as oh. between gaboons and rhinos. Yeah. Absolutely just, amazing. And you've someone who you're someone who has kept like a very focused collection. Yeah. Are definitely. as far as uh, when you start working at the reptile garden, what things will you be working with there? Well, to be honest with you, before I ever got snakes, I worked heavily with lizards when I was a kid. You know, I, I kept and bred a lot of species of lizards and stuff, and I really, I'm really looking forward to getting back into the lizards. There's things I really want for the reptile garden that are on my list, like the giant sailfin lizards, you know, the uh, the Hydrosaurus, the Amboyanensis, with the big sails down on the head and, the, and all the way down the tail. They're a real good display animal to get, but again, you've got to have the decent found in stock. And, you know, a lot of that stuff's imported, very little of that captive bred now. Well, our yeah. our guest from last week works with them, so maybe yeah. we'll have to yeah <laughs> hook you up. Yeah, they're out there, they're out there, but not in numbers, you know. There's um the Fiji iguanas. I mean, everyone, you know, everyone's familiar with the fasciatus now, but there's the biloba as well, the Tongan ones, you know, the the real sort of blue barred type with the bigger crest on the head. There's a lot of things that are going to be difficult to get as well. Australian species. I'd love to be able to find a way to get King Horn Eye. The, uh, the Aussie scrubs, you know. I think you need to look outside of the realms of the typical giant snakes and look at some things that maybe people have never seen in a zoo before. You know, we want to be different and we want to plant our own flag sort of thing. Um, Crocodilian-wise as well, we're going to have a couple of croc, croc tools. I'd like to get, you know... Something something rare crocodilian-wise, Chinese alligators. You know, maybe the Thomas Stoma, the false gharials, they're really cool. You've got those in the local zoo to me, Chester Zoo, which is, I'm lucky enough to live close enough to. You know, I go there every couple of weeks. Um, it's one of the best zoos in the world, and I'm, I'm just down the road from that, so I get to see all of that stuff quite regular. And the great display animals, the falsies, you know. But there's... There's a lot of things that I haven't worked with and I haven't had much experience with it at all. You know, like turtles and tortoises. I mean, I've got a tortoise. I've had it several years, but Randall's got all the different turtles. You know, he's got some really nice stuff and it's not just working with turtles, it's keeping water clean and, and doing things right by them as well. But there's a few things I've got to learn with the venoms and the turtles and things like that. Crocodilians I'm quite comfortable with. I did some field work catching Morales crocodiles in Mexico and doing a study on those. Um, the venomous I'm going to need Randall's help with. I've got that, some venomous handling experience, but I think with any venomous, you need a proper mentor. And I think 
you know, Randall's the guy that's going to show me the ropes and teach me how to walk away unscathed with all of that stuff. And, you know, you're only going to learn how to work with Venomous if someone's with, someone who's got that experience is willing to show you. Otherwise, the doors are closed to you. And you want to take that risk learning that, that kind of stuff without someone experienced to show you all that stuff. I just wouldn't do it. I know a lot of people do do it, but is that responsible? I'll leave that up to them, you know? Yeah, I don't know if there's many good mentors for people or it's hard um, to weed out who is a good mentor, who is not. And then obviously yeah. you're being plugged into a system where you have someone who has such vast experience. Definitely, You'll learn yeah. it right the first time. You won't have to, uh, yeah. you know, there won't be so many learning curves. And sometimes the learning curve is dangerous, you know, with yeah. with those animals, obviously. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think with, with venomous, it's just you've, You've just got to be 110% cautious. You've got to use, you know, the longest snake hook you can, the longest tongues you can. Just keep your hands out of the equation. And it's not all about showing off and, oh, look, I've got this big kaboom viper on hooks or whatever. It's about, you know, don't even pick it up off the ground if it's not safe to. You know, you've got to rule out and sort of, you've got to risk assess every sort of certain situation. We'll be doing snake shows and displays and stuff for groups of people behind, you know, on a stage behind a, a barrier and things like that. We're going to be showing venomous snakes at the reptile garden, but we're also going to have a proper protocol for handling venomous. And we're, uh, myself and Randall are going, to, are going to be working on that soon, you know, sort of a step-by-step fail-safe list of instructions on how to do things. So I know when we had uh, Randall and Ryan on, they talked a little bit about the facilities and stuff like that. And obviously they were still very much in like the planning phase of it. Uh, what phase are you in now as far as the, the facility goes? Yeah, I mean, we're still in the investment stages, but it's looking like it's close to um, close to breaking ground. Now Dennis was talking about breaking ground before July. Um he sent me all the stuff through the post the other week. He mailed me, um, mailed me the business plan, the structure of everything, all the architecture, you know, graphs and things like that of where everything's going to be. Um, so it, it, it's hard to describe how amazing the place is going to be. Mm. You know, we're going to have waterfalls all around. There's going to, it's going to be live plants everywhere. It's, it's going to be like walking into a jungle, but. I can see it already in my mind. It's just, it's 28,000 square foot of just educational sort of reptile displays. And we're going to have a bird show as well. We've got a falconer, Kevin Bird, who's um, going to come in on weekends and do flyovers for us. Not to mention, that's a great name for a falconer. Oh, yeah. Kevin Bird, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like... he goes out with a golden eagle, you know, flying a golden eagle around. He's, you know, he's a real, real good falconer. He was president of um, a falconer club out there. Um, we're going to have a croc, like a croc amphitheater, you know, sort of a scaled down version of what Steve Irwin's place has got, where people can sit around sort of in stands and watch us do crocodile feeding demonstrations. Um, we're going to have an upstairs, we're going to have a library and research lab. 
so kids and stuff can come in, do a project. You know, they can sign themselves in. It's not open to the public, but it's going to have probably the bulk of Dennis's library in there, which Dennis has got the best type library I've ever seen, hands down. He's a serious collector of books and stuff like that. So it's, it's sort of nurturing the next generation. People, not, not just into reptiles, but into natural history and biology and things like that. We're going to have computers in there where they can come in and do a project. We're going to have scout groups and we're going to do campaigns for them. And they will, Dennis was an Eagle Scout and a Scoutmaster, so he knows all about you know getting the young people excited for all of, all of this stuff, teaching them you know, woodcraft and bushcraft and things like that. Um, we're going to have two main halls of snakes. We're going to have turtle ponds where you can sort of, you know, lean over and look at all the turtles, different turtles in there. Um, we're going to have Arkansas's native snakes. So we're going to have, you know, the bulk of the species that you find in, in Arkansas in and around the national park. So it's sort of got that, you know, local education element to it as well, but we're going to have all the exotic stuff and the cool stuff from around the world also. Now, I am not technically considered a kid, but I would like to do all of the above. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, I mean, I'm sure you will feel like a kid just going to work every day. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, absolutely. You know, I'm going to get to live my dream every single day. And I'm sure, you know, every day isn't going to be without its own special set of headaches as well, but we're going to work on that and we're going to, we're going to make this place a great attraction. Hot Springs itself is a perfect place for somewhere like this. And it's right in the, what's called the opportunity zone. There's hotels opening up out in Hot Springs. There's, there's so many restaurants and nice places to eat. They've opened up all of these cycle trails. Tourism there's booming. You've got Magic Springs theme park. Oaklawn, the racetrack, is just down the road, and they've had an $80 million investment wow. on um, a brand-new hotel and a new section of the track they're opening up out there. So we're going to get all of that multiplier effect through custom and people just traveling to town for the weekend, seeing the reptile garden and say, hey, you know, I'm going to spend $18 or whatever and go in there for the day and, and check out some reptiles and maybe learn something too, you know. And I think that's the, the important thing is that obviously it seems to have such a focus on education. Yeah, absolutely. That's what it's all about. I mean, the way I'm looking at this thing is when I was a kid, you know, what would I have liked to have been around for me? And I'm going into this still thinking like a kid. So we're going to, we're going to do all of that, all of that stuff for kids. And we're going to have uh, tour guides for kids. We're going to do child's special presentations and sort of education sessions, our puppet shows and things like that. For kids of all ages, you know, up, up until the teens and, and for the adults as well. You know, we're going to have um, a pitch to Dennis, the idea of maybe doing, you know, for the 16s and above, we could do sort of be a keeper for the day, an experience where, you know, you can come in, you can go through the routine of what we what we do every day with the animals and maintenance and things like that and, and vet care and all the stuff like that. Nurturing the next generation of zoo people, you know, all of that stuff. And I think a lot of zoological facilities these days are very behind closed doors about all of that stuff. And we wanna we wanna change all that. We wanna freely get it out there that we're we're here to educate people. 
So I can't wait. Really and can't. That, and that's such a like an area of our country where people do have a lot of interactions with snakes. And yeah. you know, most of them are typically negative just the way people are raised. And yeah. I'm sure getting getting kids in there and educating them about that kind of yeah. stuff. And then also, I mean, how many people do you know that got started by just because like one pet store owner took took the time to talk to them or That's you know, good. and nurture kids. their their interest or yeah. zoos kids. or anything like that? Well, we all know kids are taught taught to fear snakes and things like that. You know, I've got a two-year-old boy who can't stop going in my snake room and trying to open cages and looking at them. He's not afraid of snakes. People are made afraid of snakes. And when, as you say, when kids have got that hands-on interaction from an early age, it changes the whole way that they look at all wildlife. It's not just snakes. It's We learn to respect things and the things that most people, most of us fear, if they're taught, you know, if these things aren't so bad from an early age, then it sort of opens their eyes and changes their attitude to everything. You know, we all need to respect our wildlife. It's not going to be here forever, the way the world's going. And, um, you know, and it starts with education and starts with the next generation too. And do, when do you think you will head over to the States to, to live here full time? Well, hopefully we'll be breaking ground in the summer. Um, depending on how long it, it could take eight months to build the place. But Dennis wants me out there a couple of months beforehand to work on cage design and stuff like that. And just to iron out any final sort of areas. Um, so hopefully after Christmas, fingers crossed. But um, as soon as we get breaking ground, we need to get working on our visa applications and stuff. Cause that's a whole, whole other hurdle, you know? Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll be fine. We'll be fine. All right. I heard they're kind of strict about that over here. I don't know. Yeah. I think it depends on, you know, your expertise level and stuff like that. But I think, um, I think when you're just doing it, you know, from a 12 month sort of tourist visa, you can work on that. So not, not a tourist visa, a 12 month working visa. I'm not going to go in and apply for the H H one B right away, you know, permanent residency or anything. We're going to do a year and see how that goes and then extend it a year and see how that goes. And then, then we'll go for permanent residency out there. So how did you sell your wife on moving here? Where's like, uh, did you have any interest in moving here beforehand? I've always wanted to live in the States. I mean, Amy's very family, family sort of, um, orientated, but I think she's seen the opportunity as well. And she knows the place is beautiful. And we're going to go out there again in September so she can have a good look around and spend a couple of weeks out there. And I think We've just had a streak of bad luck in the UK in the past few years. I mean, Amy, Amy's mum sadly passed. Um, so that was a big hit for everyone. She was sort of like, you know, the matriarch of their family. So she kept, she was the glue that bound everyone. And I think, I think that the change will be good for her, but she knows that it's going to be great for our son, Benjamin too. So I think she's all, all raring to go now, you know, when, the future in the UK just looks pretty bleak for everyone at the moment, I think. 
So uh, there's a lot of people who sort of seem envious that we're going to be moving out there and a chance to live the dream sort of thing. And Amy's fully supportive of me. She has been throughout this whole thing with the snakes. I mean, we got together 10 years ago and I think um, she was scared of snakes herself. And since then, she's just, she's warm to them. She loves them. You know, she knows that they're my passion and my hobby and they always will be. <laughs> never getting rid of them. <laughs> and she's never getting rid of me, so she's stuck. <laughs> but, um, yeah, she's fully supportive. She can't wait to get out there. And all the good places to eat as well. But oh, they, uh, man, you're going to gain weight, man. <laughs> This is what I mean. I'm gonna to have to, uh, I'm gonna to have to lose a couple of pounds before I go out there to make up for, for what I'm gonna gain out there. So many good places to eat, and uh, I went out to eat with Randall a couple of times. I'm with Dennis, and just everything that I tasted out there was fantastic. You've got better food than we've got for sure, and it's so cheap as well. The cost of living out there seems to be really cheap. Oh yeah, uh, especially know. in that particular area for sure. Yeah. In Arkansas, you know, the housing's really cheap anyway. But just to eat out and things like that. In the UK, to get on a housing ladder, now you, you need to be a millionaire to buy a house or put a down payment down on a mortgage or whatever. So I think things would be a lot easier in that respect in the States also. But I'm just looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to, you know, being around so many like-minded people because the hobby... And the industry's bigger out in the States. Plus, I'll be living close to Rumbly. And he's a good buddy of mine, you know. So we're going to be able to hang out and have barbecues with Randall and all, all of that good stuff, you know, and go herping at the weekends and and take take the little fellow with me and teach him about snakes as he grows up and stuff as well. I mean, yeah. my, dad's, my dad took me catching frogs when I was a kid because that's really all we could do. But that sort of instilled that. That passion for uh, for the creep, you know, the things that aren't really cute and cuddly, and and it's never got away from me. He taught me how to climb trees, how to go catching frogs, you know, all kinds of things like that. And I think I can't wait to till my son's old enough, to, you know, take him out and do things like that too. Yeah, it's such an awesome opportunity as a as a kid. Like when when I was a kid, I mean, we had full full reign of going pretty much wherever we wanted and going and catching frogs catching snakes going out in the just pretty much going out in the woods yeah and um you can have by far and like your life is forever you forever have a different experience than folks who did not do that and part of it i guess that's part of the reason why we are these crazy snake (laughs) people who uh barely have an attention span to keep normal jobs and all we think about is wanting to yeah do this full time is because yeah. we you know you remember how how awesome it was doing those things and like why wouldn't you want to be happy all the time yeah. that's it that's it you've just got to fill your life you know with whatever makes you happy and you've got to do the best to do that every source every day because as randall said on on your show you know life is short you know, life will flash will flash by before your eyes, and before you know it, it's over. You've got to fill your days with doing exactly what you love. And this is all I've all I've known, all I've ever loved since I was a little kid. Since I think I was probably four or five when I seen a green iguana on the TV, and that was it. That was that was me hooked. 
I got my first pet lizard when I was seven years old. And I actually went back to the pet store a couple of weeks ago where I first bought that lizard. And I remember the guy who sold it to me, and he was there at the store, you know, 27 years later. And I remembered him, and I felt like telling him, but I never I just kept quiet. But now he's this old man, you know. It, you know, time passes you by in an instant, and you've, you know, if you're not doing what you love, then, you know, it's going to be a sorry existence. You've got to do what really gets you out of bed in the morning, you know. Yeah, I think I think most people are looking at the clock all day. the The days go slow, the weekends go fast. Yeah, but and then yeah, and then before you know it, you missed your opportunity to do all the things that you said you wanted to do to experience Absolutely. all the experiences you said you wanted to do, and basically just uh, live your life. Yeah, it's definitely not monetary for me. I've never done anything for a paycheck. You know, I've never really been that concerned about money. I've always spent every penny that I've had but I just love living my life I love being out there in the countryside doing things you know it, it just makes you happy and it, you know and I hope hope that my son shares that mentality when he grows up too so obviously I, your son's pretty young but um so he's already showing interest in it though oh yeah he's got his own little snake hook Randall made for him he's um I'm constantly going in the snake room and he's, I'm, you know, opening cages or whatever and he's going, stroke, stroke. So he's reaching in there trying to stroke these big blood pythons. But most of them are puppy dogs, you know, so he's all right with them. Anything there, anything too snappy, I won't let him anywhere near at the moment because I don't want him to have that negative experience yet. But the tortoise as well, he's chasing that around the garden all the time. He's giving the the tortoise, it's food and it's salad leaves and things like that. He's just, he's, he's really interested in animals already. You know, dinosaurs are his big thing at the moment. I think we were everyone's thing when we were kids, weren't the dinosaurs? So we can name all the dinosaurs. You know, he's just making me proud every day. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. It's awesome that you can share that experience. And oh, yeah. I, I, I feel like you talk to some people and it's like, Half of their kids are interested. Half of them are just whatever yeah. at some point. Yeah, indifference to it. Some some kids prefer the Xbox, don't they? You know what I mean, Joe. And some some see beyond all of that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Thing. So, are you um, as far as bringing your collection over? You said about twenty animals or so. Maybe, yeah, uh, maybe twenty. That's probably the number I'll, that'll shoot for. But it could be more. It could be less. Uh, but I mean, are you excited? I mean, I'm sure you have the possibility to get more space. Oh yeah, we're gonna have. Can, uh, in comparison to being in the UK, I mean, Arkansas, I'm sure you can get a lot more space for your buck there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, ideally, it'd be moving into a place with a with a, a separate building or something, you know, so I could sort of take me time doing it, but kit that out the right way where I want a snake building to be. But the thing is, you know, I might be really busy at the start as well because we're planning on opening a breeding facility behind the reptile garden. So we're going to be breeding species in there to supply to other zoos and stuff like that. Plus we're going to have our own rodent colony our own ropes colony 
crickets, mealworms, things like that. And we're going to need a staff to take care of all that stuff as well. So it's, it's not just going to be the display animals. We're going to have a private breeding facility as well. And hopefully work with some of the rare stuff. Look to get Boland pythons and, you know, have a crack at them. But I think if anyone's going to do that, it's going to be Keith this year. Fingers crossed for him. You know, um, but there's a lot of things that I'd like to get and like to work with, but I want to have that sort of infrastructure set up for it first. Yeah, I, th- I think most normal people who aren't us would be like, you know, you're going to be looking after so many animals. Why would you ever grow a collection at home? Yeah. Like, it's like you're just asking to work 24 <laughs> hours, but yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. I, I, could, I could do a 12 to 14 hour day. I'm a job back here in the UK and I could still come home and spend two or three hours with the snakes. And it feels like sometimes when you do that, you actually somehow get more energy to go home yeah. and play with your, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You get that second wind as you walk through the door and you sort of, you're checking for eggs or something, or, you know, you're checking to see if eggs have hatched and it sort of wakes you up again. I mean, I'm constantly in the snake room, you know, where we could be watching a movie or something and I'll, say to Amy, you know, I'm just going to nip upstairs and check the snakes or whatever. And she's like, we're trying to watch a film here, you know, can't they wait? But uh, I just I just love it. And I think being that observational with your animals is the key to, to having success with them as well. I've, I've lost count of the, many, the amount of people this year who've said that they've missed an ovulation in one of the snakes. And I know it can be done. But if you're checking your snakes daily, it's really a difficult thing to miss. And especially blood guys telling me that they've missed an ovulation. When they ovulate, you'll know, you know what I mean? It's like they swallowed a football or whatever, but I don't know how people are missing these things, but maybe that's because my attitude is check your snakes 25 times a day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think like the first time it it took me, you know, a few years to get to the point where you dedicate a whole room to yeah. to your snakes or your reptiles in general and then like you yeah. finally get there and then sometimes you just need to like go in the middle and just look at everything and be like wow yeah this is really uh we've come yeah. a far way and i have a room filled with reptiles that i love like and it yeah. becomes your your own space you know a space that you like to hang out with or hang out in hopefully yeah there's nothing better than coming home from work and opening a beer and just being able to go into the man cave as they, you know what I mean? It's a, and you can just, it's, it, I don't know what it is. It's an escape, I suppose. But um, yeah, I, I know, I know what you're talking about there. Definitely. And I, Dude, I think, go ahead. Yeah. I kept snakes in a bedroom when I was a teenager, you know, so they didn't have their own, their own space or whatever. And that was always the dream to have your own room and to centrally heat it and things like that. And now you've got there, you're like, what else can we do? You know, <laughs> can we yeah. get a building? <laughs> <laughs> and I think now, like my ambient temperature is 80 degrees. Yeah, I'm That's... I'm in there so much that like if any, I'm cold, not 80 degrees yeah. at this point. Yeah, you just get used to it, don't you? I mean, a lot of people walk into the snake room who don't actually go in there a lot. My girlfriend doesn't go in there that much, but she'll walk in and go, it's warm in here. And I'm like, it doesn't, you can, you know, it's like, I think it's, you know, 
I think it's 78 in here today. It's not that warm. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, there's just, there's something to it. Like we were, we were pairing today and Melissa was, you know, she was like waving out her shirt and fanning yeah. herself down. And I went, this is, this is my preferred at this point, but, <laughs> but, um, too. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. But as far as, I guess we could talk a little bit on keeping. So a lot of people yeah. are interested as far as keeping blood pythons and, uh, short tails, things like that. So what are some general ways that you keep heat, humidity, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think with bloods and short tails, I think they're one of the species that sort of have a narrow range, which they thrive at. You could try keeping them sort of with a really hot spot. They don't like it. A cool end, they seem to suffer respiratory infections. And I think, if you know, the bark is sort of, and Keith McPeak especially, sort of pioneered, pioneered and sort of, through trial and error, found that their optimal range is probably 78 to 82 degrees Fahrenheit. And it seems to be that those tropical pythons, they seem to do better in sort of that narrow spectrum of temperature anyway. I mean, I think where they come from, you know, Peninsula Malaysia, Sumatra, uh, Southern Thailand, I don't think the temperature really in the forests where they're living, I don't think it really fluctuates too much outside of that range. Obviously, you're going to get days where you, you could have a cyclone or something crazy with the weather, but I think um, I think anytime you go out of those parameters, especially in captivity, and Lon Dexler said it, he said, you with bloods and short tails, you can have one bad husbandry day away from getting a respiratory infection with them. And it can be on both ends of the spectrum. If you get them below 78 for too long, and you'll go an RI with them. And I've seen it before. And if you go above 82, then you end up with this vicious, pissy snake that's, you know, really unsettled in its cage and it's pushing around and flailing around and thrashing. And they'll get an RI from stress at the hotter end of the temperature range as well. I mean, people think, it's just knocking your snakes down in temperature that, that's causing an RI. It's like us getting a cold, but it's a lot of that, a lot of the times it's brought on by stress or things being out of balance. And I think that perfect balance is at, at the 78 to 82 range. You could keep them with a slightly warmer end and a slightly cooler end, but I think you'd find the middle of the, the middle of that range and sort of sit at that, you know. Um, caging wise, adults do great in like a four by two. You don't really move that much. You know, being a sedentary ambush sort of snake, but they just sort of sit there like landmines waiting for a rat to pass by or whatever. And um, that's where they're found in in um, palm oil plantations out there in Sumatra and places like that. They seem to do really well. And Marco Shea said it on your uh, show. He said, you know, where there's this monoculture now of palm oil and things like that, nature's payback is for the snakes to sort of boom because of the rodents in increase. And I think blood pythons are one of the species that have done really well because of palm oil, oil agriculture. Um, what they do is, and in, in, in they have these rows of palm trees out there in Sumatra, and they chop all the, the lower fronds off and throw them into a pile. 
and that makes sort of like this big furrow pile all the way down the plantation in between the rows of palm trees. And that's where all the rodents are, and that's where you're finding the blood pythons. So for the skin trade especially, the harvesters of blood pythons are out there just lifting up these brush piles of old palm fronds. And there's venomous stuff in there. There's cobras and things like that. But predominantly what they're pulling out is blood pythons. And But another, an, an interesting fact about them is you don't often find baby blood pythons in the wild. They're finding the adults all the time. So they must be right there, the babies. But the babies perhaps have some sort of subterranean existence. Are they living down mouse holes and things like that? But they, they don't often turn up babies of them in the wild. So I've been told, and so I've done my homework on. Obviously, I haven't been out there yet. I'd like to get out there and see see this stuff for myself, you know. Um, yeah, there's there's been some interesting things opened up about the range of them in the wild. Uh, the, the latest Barker book, the Pythons of Asia in the Malay Archipelago, there was um, they thought they had the range narrowed down to, you know, Malaysia, uh, Borneo for the Borneo short tails. Sumatra for the Sumatrans on one side and the, the Brongas Mai on the other. But way over on the Thai-Cambodian border, uh, Thai, uh, the Vietnam-Cambodian border, they found a wild blood python, which is hundreds of miles out of the natural range, like a country across. So if the habitat's the same in between, that gap, they must be there too. Perhaps, maybe. Just this stuff just hasn't been studied enough. Maybe they were there all along or whatever, you know. But they have found blood pythons on that um that Vietnam Cambodian border, which is which is absolutely miles away from where they their natural range was pinned down. So that's an interesting thing. Also they've got the the fourth species that are, that was classified by George Zug, the uh the Mon Python. Python Oh, I haven't even heard of this. Yeah, well, you're only going to see the pickled specimen in books because they've only found one. But it was a gravid female, and it was found in Myanmar. And uh, it's, it was named after the reserve it was found, the Jaktio Reserve. Although it's pronounced Jaktio, it's spelled very differently. It's K-Y-A-I-K-T-I-Y-O. It's a crazy, crazy uh, nomenclature on it. But they found one, and it's uh, preserved in a museum somewhere now pickled in a jar. And there must be more there. This was a gravid female, but Myanmar's a treacherous place to go to. You know, it's still sort of very much dangerous place to go to. You know, scientists go out there, but some of them don't come back. <laughs> so, Right. And now you know, that obviously pickled, I mean, there may be some coloration differences and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. What does it, and it, it definitely fits into the short tail complex though? It does, but to me, from what I can see, it looks like it's got a shorter, rounder head. The scalation's different on it. Um, it's it's more towards the Brong. Brong is my because obviously it's north of the Brong's range. It's not where Borneo and Sumatra are southern, but it looks really yellow and sort of golden. It looks like a Borneo short tail, if anything. The the photo of it when it was freshly caught. But then the other photos of it are, you know, obviously the holotype. It is in the Barker's latest book, but you can find it online too. But it's interesting. It'd be interesting to see one alive, you know, just to see the differences. Because it's all well and good, you know, 
seeing these things in a book or pickled in a jar, but to see them up close, you know, you need to sort of see the differences for yourself with your own eyes. It'd be cool if one turned up again, you know. People say the rarest python in the world is the Owen Pelly python. Well, at the moment, it's not. It's the mom python because there's only been one found. No, and no. these these animals and probably the bloods and short tails included must be living such a um how could you say it but basically whether it's secluded or underground or in some way or fashion they aren't to be found although yeah. obviously the the exception with the palm oil plantations that seems to have kind of gotten yeah. them out but definitely definitely i mean i think in um in the pristine habitat that they've got, they're a lot harder to find. Apparently, they're found along slow drain and rivers and things like that, and they seem to be sort of swamp-dwelling snakes. But where this this palm oil plantations are coming up, that's where you're finding them in abundance, you know, in these rows of sort of chopped palm fronds. But, and I mean, just by just by looking at these animals... They're not chasing anything down. They're not getting away from no. anything. They just seem like very vulnerable slugs out there. Definitely. I mean, they're a very short squat, heavy-bodied snake. Um, I think most of the captive ones are too too fat. But we're all guilty of feeding our snakes a little bit too much. Um, the ones in the wild look quite rangy, but they're still short and squat, and they just sit there like coiled springs, you know, on these scent trails waiting for a rodent to go past. Um, apparently they eat a lot of ducks in the wild too you know with the, they're found along those slow draining rivers and they're waiting for like ducklings and things like that to go past so maybe we're not giving them as varied a diet as we should be a lot of the, the sort of attitude with herpsiculture lately is sort of advancing how you think about light in the cage or the substrate for enrichment and things like that. I, I don't think snakes have got that much cognition for all of that stuff. But why aren't we why aren't we working with the diet on these things? Why are we only giving them lab bred rats and things like that? Why aren't we giving them birds, you know, various other mammal species or whatever? Because they're gonna be getting all of that sort of thing. And I think diet is a big a bigger contributor to the sort of health and longevity of an animal than what substrate it's kept on. But everyone sort of looks at what substrate you're keeping it on, you know, <laughs> as opposed to the diet. Oh, it's okay to just live on rats its whole life, you know, one size rats the rest of its life. Why aren't we mixing it up and trying new things? I think that's a big thing. What, you know, nutrition is a, is a big thing that's missed in herpsiculture, especially. I mean, when I started keeping reptiles, we had brown crickets and we had mealworms, that's all. And now we've got all these different roaches, you know, different, you know, dubia roaches, banana roaches, all kinds of silkworms and things, hornworms and things like that, all available now to give these lizards and things a really varied diet. I think, um, I think the snake side of things needs to be looked at too, you know? Yeah, and, and the, the first thing we try to do is to switch it over to rodents if it's not eating rodents yeah and uh you know especially i mean we have things like hognose over here yeah. man these things probably don't eat any rodents <laughs> in the wild but here we are feeding them rodents every yeah. five days that's it that's it yeah i mean garter snakes too everyone wants to switch the garters onto rodents 
I kept garters and I used to catch tadpoles and put them in the water dish for them and watch the garters, you know, actively sort of swimming around for these uh, these frog tadpoles. Used to give them fish, you know, things like that. And imagine how much more fat content is in a rodent compared to yeah. things like that. Absolutely. And you look at things like uh, the Aspidites, the things that really suffer if you get them too fat in captivity, especially, uh, you know, reproduction-wise. Black-headed pythons, if you give them too fatty a rodents, they just don't do well with females. They'll die die quick. They just, they're, they're so efficient at metabolizing everything. But look at what they're eating in the wild. I shared a photo the other day of a, of a friend of mine lives in um, the Kimberley. And he, he sent me a photo of that black-headed python dangling down from a rafter. And it was swallowing a goanna, you know, upside down. They're eating lean lizards in the wild. They're eating monitor lizards. You know, where's the fat content on them things? Then there isn't. You know, they're eating a lean diet. And I think these lab-bred rodents fed on this, you know, factory sort of made chow stuff with all the stuff to get them as fat as possible, as fast as possible. I don't think that's the best thing for our snakes. But, you know, it's it's easily sort of... Uh, it's managed now and it's commercialized and you've got big rodent companies out there like Rodent Pro and the big cheese and things like that. And they're doing millions of rats every year. A friend of mine started a rodent production company here in the UK and he's got a really, really nice setup, Dave Russian. And he started a company called Rattle Snacks and they're doing, you know, every size rodent you can want. They're doing the African soft bears, mice. And the packaging and everything's really, really, and I think, you know, it's great for the hobby. But I think there's a lot of things outside of rodents that we need to look at with snakes, especially, you know. Yeah, I think that's definitely, it's good for pet owners and keeper and younger keepers, stuff like that. Yeah. But we're keeping, when you're keeping rare stuff or things that are more diverse in what they eat, I understand having a rat snake on rats, even though they may eat a bunch of lizards and stuff in the yeah. wild, but... But, I mean, there's other species that can clearly benefit from from something like that, especially a lot of our Australian species are Morelia. And, you know, I'm here saying this, but, I mean, I feed my carpets rodents. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Because it's just difficult to do anything else. And I, I understand why, but there's also – we could create a market, I guess, if we really wanted to for, for other types of feeders as well. Yeah, with the Morelia, I, I do offer quail and stuff as well. I've got two carpet pythons. They were just gifts from a friend of mine. But I do give them quail. I give them day-old chicks and rats and mice and stuff as well. But, you know, you're so limited as to what's available and the cost of certain things. You know, you can get gerbils in the UK to feed snakes. But you're looking at about £10 or something for a gerbil, you know, just to give it that varied food item. So, you know, I think ball pythons and stuff like that, I'd probably, I'd probably love them. But, you know, it's got to be available to, to, to make it yeah. sort of worth, worthwhile and make it something people are going to be thinking about. But, yeah, right. back, to the, back to the blood pythons. Um, <laughs> we, got, well, we, we went off a little bit. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't feed them weekly. Happen. I think okay. feeding them weekly is a surefire way to get them fat. You just so efficient in metabolizing everything that they eat into body weight. You know, I'd say 60% of what they eat gets turned straight away into body body weight. Um, 
females when I'm conditioning them off to breed and they'll get a little a smaller meal but more regular. So it just sort of like kicks that follicular development on, so so to speak. Then when you know that they're gonna go and you can see them swelling up, you'll give them a couple of big meals. And that sort of pushes them over the edge to ovulation then. With cycling and things like that, I don't cool them down. I do let the window in the room dictate the light cycle. So in the winters here, we only get about six to eight hours of daylight. So, you know, the days are really short in the winter. And I think that really kicks them on to sort of, especially the males, it triggers them into thinking, you know, thinking about breeding. Um, but yeah, I do a food cycle where I feed very sparingly in the summer and then towards the winter I'll pick it up a little bit just to get the females to switch on and then I'll back off again when you, when you know that the females are going to go um, males get fed probably once a month you know anything more than that you're going to end up with this fat lazy male and what's um, what's appropriate size for an adult um, I mean there's a range the black eye matrix that I've read he's really small he looks like maybe 800 gram male ball python would look size wise and he's breeding and he's breeding everything that will move so he's a really active breeder at that size but some of them just won't turn on until the fourth or fifth year with these males they're very individual and and they need to be a bit bigger and especially if the females a bit bigger too he's got to you know he can't feel intimidated by her because i think he'll if you give him a too big a female or a female that's shrugging him off all the time, I think he'll scare that male from breeding maybe for the next year or two until the lights come back on again. It's sort of that experience, you know, doesn't sit well with them. But I find that, um, I find that keeping the males too big for all my males are smaller than the females. I think keeping them too big is they just sit in the corner and do nothing. If you keep them sort of in a nice healthy body weight where you can see a visible spine on them, they're, they're more prone to do active courtship. And it took me a few years to figure out how to breed blood pythons. I tried for a couple of years and failed. But I was glad that I failed because I learned the wrong ways of doing things. I was only speaking to people like Keith McPeak and stuff that gave you sort of a nudge in the right direction. And Keith, I've been asking him questions for, you know, 15 years or so. You know, and he's always willing to share his information. And some of the things he's written down about blood pythons and stuff has helped the whole community with care requirements, with health sort of problems that arise, with breeding, breeding them. You know, Keith should really, really write a book on the species, I think. Uh, let's get into eggs and incubation. I incubate it. 87 and a half to 88.5 degrees. So typical pythons. Yeah, typical pythons. A lot of people try and go higher and get earlier, earlier pipping, but I think that's a bad way to do these things. I think if, if, if anything, you incubate on a little bit on the cooler end, you get a more robust baby hatching out of the egg. Um, that seems to be more inclined to eat right away, take the first meals. And some of the babies can be a bit finicky when you start, but you, if you just tease them with the rodents or, you know, tap the tails and things like that, they'll strike in defense and more often than not, they'll hold on. 
and that'll get the baby started. They'll just sort of instinctively swallow something that they've bitten down in aggression. It sticks in their mouth and then they, they figure it out after a couple of minutes and they'll swallow it right down. But once these things start eating, they don't quit. <laughs> once that first meal has, has been taken, you know, they're just they're eating machines and they'll eat every day if you fed them, but obviously you don't do that. With Hatsons, I feed them maybe weekly to every 10 days. You know, put uh, a good size, like fuzzy rats or something. You know, a rat chub, something with a um, with a bit of bit of size on it, just to make a considerable bulge in the snake. And they grow really quick, really fast. And yeah. is there like as far as do you ever have to do scenting or anything like that, or they naturally uh, mm. take rodents? Yeah, not really. I've had a couple of tricky feeders that are just assist fed. You know, when it's been six to eight weeks after hatching and they just haven't really taken anything, but you've assist fed it, say like a rat's head, and then they'll just they'll just eat on the, off their own accord after that. It's like once they've figured it out that this is food, you'll put a rat in there a week later and it's gone. You know, you don't really get any really picky feeders. And I've never had to resort to live feeding with them either. They've always taken deep frost stuff. If you go in at night in the dark, I think that really helps with a warm prey item. And they really pick up on it. And they use long tongues too, so they can't... not picking up on my heat signature as much. Things with baby blood pythons is as soon as you loom over them with that warm sort of... Um, with that warm face that you've got or, you know, your hands or whatever, you terrify them. And I think that's why they're so reactive and so inclined to bite especially when the babies, I mean, they settle down when they're adults, but as babies, everything, they, they see you as an orangutan or something, I suppose, in the, you know, in the forest of uh, Sumatra, you're a big ape looming over it, and, you know, you're, you're going to be a problem for it. So I think the less it sees you, the better. Just use long tongs and a, a nice warm prey item. Tease the, tease the snake a little bit to get it to strike, and you're good. Really no. easy. Now I hear a lot of people's concerns when getting a blood python or short tail is typically like humidity. How do yeah. you keep humidity? What's proper range for humidity? I mean, I don't think my room dries out that much because obviously I don't have hot spots or anything in there. It stays, you know, stays around 80. But I use a large water dish in every cage and I use um, plastic tubs for the babies. I think glass aquariums are just the wrong way to go for these things. Um, screen tops are the wrong way to go because they just don't hold humidity very well. I think racking works really well for them. Uh, it gives them that sort of um, the privacy that they like. You know, I think a lot of sliding glass enclosures with the sliding doors sort of rattle along. And because they're such a sessile snake that sits close to the ground with its chin to the ground, I think those those ground vibrations when you're sliding glass along, I think that terrifies them and it, it leads to just them popping at the glass right away as opposed to with racking, you can just slide out the drawer and you can go under the snake and everything's right with the world. They won't be inclined to bite or, you know, if you pick them off the ground, you need to use two hands with a large blood because they just want to be on the ground. You know, if you've got a carpet or something, you know, the instinct for a carpet or something arboreal is just to go up or climb up one of the shelves in your room or whatever. 
people with bloods and stuff. They just want to nosedive and flop around like a fish out of your hands to get down to the ground. But if you offer two-handed support, they um, they seem to really appreciate that. You know, I've never been bitten by a blood python. I've had a couple that have tried to bite me, but you read the body language of the animal and you stay out of its way when it's like that. Wait, so are you saying never? Never been bitten. No way. I'm telling you, never been bitten. I've been bitten by plenty of ball pythons with my own stupidity going in at night of feeding time. You know, probably drunk or something stupid and irresponsible, but I've never been bitten by a blood python. That's crazy. I mean, obviously, I have a limited experience. I just have a Sumatran, and he is really chill. But, yeah. I mean, it it does seem like you can tell when one is, is ready to go. And plus, they're huge as far as the, their body goes. I mean, can they really turn around on you that fast? Like, they can flip up. Like, they can do a 180. They're like a gaboon viper, you know. It could be – the head of the snake could be pointed away from you one end and then – if you loom over it, and I have had one individual which was just nuts like this, but I didn't stick my hand in its face, so I never got bit. Use a hook and things like that. I'll put a glove on with an animal like that, and you're okay. This animal used to just point away from you, and if you you sort of crept over to it when it was on the floor of the snake room, it would literally, by doing it, it would just spin around and do a backflip as well. Do, you know, it was levitating, you know. They can be like that. They can be real coiled springs. They're all muscle. You know, I think feeding-wise, blood pythons are one of the most powerful of the pythons feeding-wise. You'll put a guinea pig in there and they can pop it. You know, the guts will explode out, you know, on an adult. They're that aggressive. And if you keep them hotter, you'll definitely see that food aggression a lot more enhanced which is another reason we don't keep them too hot. And again, if you keep them too hot, you'll get regurgitations and things like that. These are all these are all the clues which are telling you what temperature range to keep your snake in. If it's too cool, it's going to be really inactive and it's going to get a respiratory infection. If it's too hot, then it's going to regurgitate. So you narrow those parameters down and you find out the perfect spot for these things. And I come under a lot of stick sometimes for... Especially in the UK, everyone seems to think that every single species needs this big thermal gradient to keep it happy and healthy. I think a lot of a lot of tropical stuff doesn't work like that. It doesn't get cold. And a lot of tropical forest floor stuff doesn't get a chance to bask in the full sun. So it doesn't need this scorching hot basking spots either. I think they're just going around, if anything, on too hot a day, I think, in the wild. I think they're looking to cool seek as opposed to heat seek. So that you'll find them in the water or in around the swamp and things like that, or in a tree stump or a tree hollow. And uh, I always follow Terry Phillips' advice on keeping pythons. Just use that ambient room temperature. And I've tried it the other way, you know, where they've had a cool room and a warm spot and things like that. And I, I never saw the benefits that I'm seeing now with keeping an ambient one. I think there's certain species outside of those parameters, like diamond pythons and stuff. Maybe, you know, you need you need to cool those things down. Bowen's pythons, another one. But Terry's bred diamond pythons several several times with no temperature drops. They don't hmm. see all of that diamond python syndrome that's associated with keeping a hot spot, you know, year round and things like that. I think he's found a happy medium with this method. 
And he's, and... Um, he's taught me a lot with it, to be honest. You know, I've learned a lot. And I've learned to think about a snake a lot, a tropical snake especially, by just by listening to Terry and his advice. Yeah, I think uh, I keep... I keep most of my snakes ambient 80 degrees. So it's not even just, just pythons, but I keep within yeah. that range. And typically it will go uh, by accident. Sometimes it goes 78, but usually I want to stay oh, 80, yeah. 82. And yeah. uh, I have my short tail in there as well. And he always did well, but yeah, I mean, I hate to, to paint with a broad brush on that, but that's what's worked for me as well. So yeah. I don't think, I don't, and I don't think that people, Man, people don't like when you say that because people have been telling them forever that there has to be this thermal grading. Your snake needs choices. And yeah, that sounds good. But yeah, anecdotally, it has always worked for me ambient wise. And I've always bred and they've, you know, gone their whole life cycle. You know, I don't get. Yeah. You see better fertility as well, especially in pythons, you know, where if you had a hot spot, you'd have, you know, a couple of slugs every clutch or, you know, or a couple of infertile eggs. So obviously the female basking on that heat was killing off any stored sperm inside her or killing off follicle growth or she was ovulating before the follicles were full size. So you're getting these these hard yellow slugs, which are, you know, immature over that have been fired out or whatever. And I think that was all temperature speeding up that process. I mean, keeping it ambient there's a rule of thumb with pythons that they lay eggs 30 days after the post-ovulation shed. I've had them go 50 to 60 days with a cool, I think it's the temperature dictates the speed of these things. And, um, I just let nature take its course with them now. I mean, when, when they're ready to go, they're ready to go. I don't think we should rush anything by heating things up. So that's why I incubate a bit cooler and I keep my animals a little bit cooler. And I think, they do better in the long run with it. I think if I'm not mistaken, I read something, uh, and I believe Matt does this too, uh, that Kara gives some supplemental heat to, to females cycling or something like that. Do you do yeah, that at well, all? Once they've ovulated, once they've had that um, ovulation, everything in there is fertilized anyway. So you're not going to kill sperm. You're not going to reduce the motility of sperm. You're not going to, you know, any fair, any fully mature follicles were ovulated were a full size or weren't anyway. So, you know, you're out of that danger zone there. And I think a female, a gravid female does, does bask a little bit more. What I do with my gravid females, I take the rack that they're in and I'll just swap it out with one higher up in the room. And I find that higher up in the rack in the room, they're getting maybe 84, you know, so it gets up to 84, maybe 85 sometimes. And, you know, and they do really well with that. You know, yeah. I think you, if you're getting, you get an exit maybe 35 to 40 days as opposed to cooler at 80 where you're waiting 50 days for your eggs after after the pre-lay shed. And how, how long does it typically take uh, your eggs to hatch? And And obviously that's temperature dependent as well, right? Yeah, I mean, incubating at 87.5, you're looking at 60 days. So some people turn, turn the incubator up a notch and try and get them out of 55 days, but it's usually 60 days there or thereabouts. And uh, it's 
the most agonising weight in the world, always waiting for babies to hatch out. Just waiting to see what's going to pop out. So this is usually your busier time of the year, right? Are you getting eggs this time? Yeah, I mean, I think I've gone really early this year. I had a clutch hatched with the black eyes in. That was six weeks ago. They hatched, so I got eggs really early in the year with those. Um, I got another clutch 40 days ago, which is due to, due to hatching about 18 days, 20 days. Um, and everyone's only just getting ovulation, so it seems to have gone before everyone this year. Whereas a couple of years ago, it seems to be after everyone. In the summer, I was getting ovulation. So, but what one interesting thing about the cycle, um, the female that gave me the super stripe batiks last year, she ovulated on one day last year. And this year, she ovulated the very day after that. So 366 days afterwards. So I find that that, that made me quite happy because it must mean that my animals are in some sort of cycle in the room. You know, some sort of annual cycle. And now, are you are you more so reading them and their cycle instead of trying to manipulate it? Yeah, definitely. I think I think individuals will find their own. I think what you do in the room can help sort of put everyone along the same along the same track. But I'm never getting ovulations all together all at once. It's like a month later, and then a month later, another female will go. And then sometimes you'll get a female, which is like, as I said earlier, like midsummer, like somewhere crazy. And it's just whether or not she was holding the follicles at a certain size or waiting for something or waiting for a little bit more food or a temperature or a low pressure system or something. You know, some some of these things that we don't see what they're picking up on, but I think they definitely pick up on the outside weather a lot. Low pressure systems seem to really trick breeding as well. Like you could have nothing from a pair, and then you'll get snow outside. And you'll crack the window in the snake room just to let a bit of fresh that fresh breeze to come through. And all of a sudden, the snakes are caught in, and the males spare, and they're like nothing. And and if that weather's definitely triggered them, you know. So it's really interesting the things the snakes are picking up on that we aren't really picking up on. The lunar calendar is another one which is interesting. Seems to be around the new moon, you get a lot of uh, breeding activity when it's really dark. So I often look at the moon. Sometimes, you know, Amy, my girlfriend, she's like, what the hell are you doing looking at your lunar calendar for? I said, well, I'm a lunatic, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so are you one of those detailed guys and very as far as uh, record keeping, stuff like that? I've got, um, this year especially, I've got a big big year planner wall chart which I've uh, put up on the, the wall of the snake room and I've been marking certain things on that just to look for patterns will I find anything is the sample size big enough probably not but it's just another observational thing isn't it to keep you interested and keep you keep you guessing and keep your mind going you know I don't think there's one size fits all with with any of this stuff and I think until pythons and snakes in general learn to talk and tell us exactly what we want. <laughs> you know, be easy, yeah. yeah, well, yeah, you know, you're doing it all wrong, Dad. <laughs> but um, you know, that's never going to happen, is it? So we've got to sort of learn what works, learn what do- what doesn't. And again, it's the same thing people were doing 40 or 50 years ago. Trial and error has led us to this sort of 
we're at the privileged age now of her as a culture where everything's fed us on a plate. No one really has to work that hard. No one's picking books up anymore. No one's buying the good books anymore. And that's one thing I've str- I'm, I'm starting to work on now. I'm been spending all my money on Amazon, ordering old books and various books, even the books that probably aren't very good, but seeing different sides of things, you know. And I think reading and picking up a book is a lot more helpful than reading a care sheet or something on the internet. You know, I think picking up a, a proper book written by someone with experience and someone who's took the time and has had the passion to write a, write a book on a species anyway is obviously really into it. So get out there and buy books too. Absolutely. I think that we are quick to take our information from obviously things like YouTube and listen, I make yeah. YouTube videos and I'm not that fucking smart. Let's be honest. So I, I mean, shit, you, you got to open yeah. up a book every once in a while. You're one of the good YouTubers. We all know who the bad ones are, Joe. <laughs> you know, yeah. I get haircuts and I don't, yeah. you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I it's, my face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's like, but the thing is like, I have in front of me, I have Peterson's field guy because I was trying to make my information right yesterday or yeah. I did. Um, oh man, I had to, I had to send a message to, to Matt, Eric and Owen because I was like, I had this question about Sumatran short tails. And then I had uh, this question about the scientific name of a Southern white-lipped python, which yeah. apparently brings up a lot of bad stuff. More than I did, it was more complicated than I ever thought. Yeah. Um, don't, don't say Hose's name three times. <laughs> yes, that is, that is the one snake, I think, where it's literally accepted that it's Hoseri or Hoseray or yeah. some bullshit. So, so. That I think, is... Yeah, I think they've been grouped into Bothra Chilis now, haven't they, with the Bismarck ring pythons, which they do look quite similar. But I well, still the think thing is, differences. someone in 2007 said that they were going to be Lyasis. Someone, oh, um, I believe the Barkers accepted Hoseray or whatever the hell it is. Um in their book so i guess we went with that one but yeah yeah there's there's a few it's either liasis both rachillis or whatever yeah. however you say that um and then there's a there's another one as well but damn i was yeah. like oh man i didn't know that that was that hairy which is fun <laughs> the uh, taxonomy is always always going to be a a uh, subject just laden with tripwires and you're always going to upset the wrong person you know bringing things up but I think, you know, we need to ignore the blunder from down under. More than, <laughs> more than we listen to him. Let's just let's just say that. Yeah. Yeah, but like like I told them, I mean, a blind squirrel gets a nut every once in a while, and I guess he got his nut on that one. And uh Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> At least it wasn't named after his dog or a pop star or something like that, you know, like a lot of the other things he's tried to classify. Well, that's what I'm saying. I kind of wish it was so I didn't have to say the name over and over again. But <laughs> but um, as far as the future of your keeping everything like that, I mean, what are there's some very obvious things to look forward to, but. What are just yeah. a couple of things that you look forward to in the future as far as keeping on the private side even? 
Uh, on the private side, I suppose I'm looking looking forward to diversifying and working with with different things. I'm looking forward to getting into the states and working with some of the locality colubrids that you've got out there and some of the cool stuff. You know, um, king snakes. I'd love to get. Thank back you for calling that the cool stuff. Yeah, I've, I've got a story now, which I've got to tell you about when I kept king snakes years ago as a child, and I'm, I think it was eleven when I got my first clutch of corn snake eggs. And I was incubating them in a like a plant propagator type setup. Well, um, upstairs in the house, I had a Californian king snake, and I'd had this king snake for about six months, and it had never escaped, or it was always in you know what I thought was a, a safe cage and things like that, and it never got out. But when these this first clutch of corn snakes I ever had started pipping, I checked them in the morning, and I looked inside this plant propagator. And I, and I said, that's a funny-looking baby corn snake. And it was this black and white thing in there. And then I realized it was the king snake had escaped, crawled downstairs, crawled under two interior doors of the house with no gap under them. I don't know how it got in there. And it was pulling baby catling corns out of their eggs and constricting them. And that, to me, was, although I was horrified that my first clutch of corns you know, that I bred myself and I was 11 years old and I was all excited. I've bred, I've bred something, you know, I was really happy with. But I found it really cool that this king snake had been obviously picked up on the smells of the uh, the eggs pipping, the albumin or whatever, and it found its way to escape out the cage and it found its way down the stairs and into this plant propagator and was eating these baby corn snakes. That just goes to show that how amazing the sense of smell on these things is. You know, absolutely, you'll never ever get bored, and you'll you'll always be surprised with something with these animals, and that's again what what makes it really fun. But yeah, other than colubrids, I'm I'm looking forward to getting some cool venomous stuff, and Randall, I'm sure, can help me out with all of that, and maybe branching out with some cool different species of pythons too. You know, I'd like to get the white lips myself. I'd mm-hmm. like to. Uh, I'd like to get all his pythons, all the cool Australian stuff that I haven't haven't worked with any Antaresia yet. So that'll be that'll be quite interesting to get some of those. Savu pythons are something really on my radar, but I'd want the really decent captive bred ones. Um, but yeah, there's there's so much I want to do, and there's, you know, there's so many things I want to work with. Randall's got some cool turtles I want as well. The uh, alligator snappers, I believe he still has those, right? He's got, he's got a big, big alligator snapper, but he's got these Geoclemmys Hamiltoni as well, these black ones with their spots all over them. They're really cool. Little pond turtle from Asia. Um, there's so many things I want to work with. Lizards again, iguanas, various iguanas. Your world's about to open up, man. <laughs> Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> so I guess correction, because usually we say things on the podcast and then I have to backtrack later. But Brandon in the chat was holding the, the Barker's book. And um, yeah. the one the one I looked at, there was a paper that Eric sent me. And I put, I believe, Leo Python Hoserai. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, I think that the, was the uh, the one that they've scrapped recently. They've changed it to both. I think it's Botrytulus Albertese. And... Uh, 
I think they still might use a hoserai in the book, but there's Meridionalis as well. That's what that. that's what uh, Brandon said. The Barkers have in their book right now. Yeah, yeah. There's a few things in the book which a lot of people, especially in the Morelia world, have disagreed with. I think the Darwin carpet python. I think uh, the Variegator. I think they've. I think they've changed the classification on that as well. I'm not too sure, but. A lot of people disagree. That with it is, anyway. yeah. I don't even want to get into Popwin, IJ, Jungles, Coastals. Yeah. Everyone oh thinks they're yeah. the same. They're different. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Again, that's a thorny subject, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like, and it will change tomorrow. So what the hell are we gonna yeah. do? Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> but anything else as far as uh whether it be the reptile park or private stuff that you want to get out there um yeah I'd, I'd, basically i'd like to thank randall and dennis obviously for giving me this opportunity um i think randall saw something in me several years ago when we first became friends and you know he said to me if a job offer ever came up for you would you come over to the states and and take it and i always told him that yes i would you know and a, and we developed a friendship and something came up and Randall put me forward to Dennis and recommended me. So I think both of those guys have took a chance on me. I'm determined not to let them down. You know, I'm going to be a good ambassador for this place and we're going to do this thing the right way. And I'm looking forward to hopefully yourself coming down and seeing it and all the other guys in the community as well. You know, everyone's welcome. We'll do an event. We'll throw a barbecue. We'll do something and we'll get everyone to have, you know, a VIP access, look at this place when it's built. You know, it's going to be fantastic. And, and we're more than willing to share our information with other people as well. I think that's what's going to set us apart from a lot of places. And we're going to bring on the next generation of herpers too. Man, I'm, I'm so excited for you guys and I'm pumped <laughs> to see what you guys do. If anyone yeah. wants to get in touch with you, where can they get in touch with you? Yeah, they can find me on Facebook, um, just under my personal profile. Or if you want to talk snakes specifically, they can find me on Northwest Constrictors UK. Or if anyone wants to check out the Reptile Garden, there's a Facebook page now for Hot Springs National Park Reptile Garden too. So we'll be adding information to that and videos and interviews and things like that as we go. So it's all there. Anyone wants to hit me up, my phone number is listed on my Facebook profile too. So... I'm always willing to chat on the phone. I think, you know, there's not enough talking on the phone these days. Everything's just sort of done in form, you know, through a messenger thing, and you don't really get to hear each other properly. So, yeah, that's why I do these interviews. <laughs> yeah. You, when do you get to talk to someone like this face to face for two <laughs> hours? So, yeah. you can reach us, portcitypythons.com, portcitypythons on Facebook. This is from the ground out podcast available wherever they are found podcast wise. And thank you guys so much for hanging out. Thank you to Graham for hanging out with me. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. And everyone have a good one. We will see you next week.